When most people think of cults, they think of the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. But in the early 1900s, the New Thought Movement inspired many people across the United States to take their spiritual life in a new direction. So behind this whole movement was a woman named May Otis Blackburn. And she would take this new culture of spiritualism and create one of the strangest cults the U.S. had seen to date. Each trumpet would signal a catastrophic event leading to the end of the world and God's final judgment. The sun would become black as sackcloth of hair. The moon would become the color of blood. Stars and comets would fall from the sky. And they were visited by the angel Gabriel. And he told them they were the two witnesses that God had chosen to announce the end of the world. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. In the studio, I'm joined by my co-host, Austin. Hey, hey, what up? What's up, man? And behind the scenes, we got Daniel. What's up, buddy? Hey, everybody. Today, we've got a uh, very, very strange episode, and that's putting it lightly. It's probably one of the weirdest stories I've ever heard, honestly. I'm not, it just It's surprising to even believe that it's a true story. Yeah, it's one of those niche cults that don't get a lot of attention because there's just not a ton of people who are a part of it. But it's so weird when you start digging into it. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's one that just kind of like flew under the radar, I feel like, for a long time. I'm kind of calling it the weirdest religious cult you've never heard of yeah. because it's it, it's a cult started by this woman named May and her daughter. And things just get progressively weirder and weirder as time goes on. So this is one of those where you got to almost probably listen through this episode a few times to kind of like wrap your head around the whole story because there's a lot of things that happen and unfold over time uh lots of people come in and out of the the picture but it's a strange one so buckle in but before we get into the episode i just want to remind you that you can support the show for absolutely no cost by just going to youtube hitting the subscribe button Following us on Spotify really does help us out as well as subscribing on Apple Podcasts. If you're not, take one second, go make sure you're doing at least one of those things. Or you can follow us over at TikTok as well at Lights Out Cast. But we are very, very close to officially announcing our new merch collection, which is going to be our cryptid collection. I know I've hinted at this for a while now. It's been a uh, quite a bit of work to get, get to this point, but I'm hoping in the next week or so we'll actually be able to announce and show you what this new collection looks like i'm very excited about it because i think everything turned out really cool yeah i've got to see some of the designs and they just look it's taken a long time but i, I think, think it's going to be worth it in the yeah, end i think it's gonna be really really cool i'll give you a little preview so the four cryptids that we chose are the wendigo of course and then we've got the black shuck then we've got mothman of course and then fourth and finally we have the Jersey Devil and everything so, so cool. But yes, that new collection will be available on Mile Higher March here very soon. I'll be announcing a date hopefully in the next week or two. But also go take advantage of the current items we still have out there from the past collections. They are discounted right now. So I think there's a few things left. So if you want any of our previous collections, go check it out right now. 
But let's go ahead and just jump right into this one. Got a lot of ground to cover. And again, uh, a very, very strange story for you. So here we go. When most people think of cults, they think of the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. But in the early 1900s, the New Thought Movement inspired many people across the United States to take their spiritual life in a new direction, especially in Los Angeles. The main ideas of this mind-healing movement drew its inspiration from Christian science, transcendentalism, and the teachings of the philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson. And this New Thought Movement really kind of swept the nation, especially out west. They were inspired by beliefs that ideas or thoughts were more real than physical matter. They focused on this meeting ground between body and mind. And the specific beliefs of the New Thought Movement are kind of hard to pin down because they're very individualistic and it's kind of spawned a lot of religious movements since then. Which it makes sense because this whole you know, mind over matter type thing. Like, so it's the concept is you essentially like create your own reality with your mind. Exactly. You, you know, you kind of, it's almost like manifestation in a way, like you manifest your own reality and you know, the things you think about are potentially what, you know, actually shows up in the physical world. Yeah. And those, those same concepts are, yeah, very real today. What is it? It's like, um, the law of attraction is is big now. This is kind of where it, stem from a little bit obviously because it reaches back even further from its inspirations but that the main idea is that your thoughts your prayers your ideas have this force on the physical world interesting one of the core beliefs was that truth is a continuing revelation and no leader or institution could declare the nature of truth capital t truth Many who followed the movement believed illness was the result of poor thinking, and through prayer and thought, they could achieve things like wealth and good health. This movement got so much traction back in the 1920s that it's, like we were saying, still pretty influential today. That core concept of your mind having power is, I don't know, attractive to a lot of people. Well, I feel like there's so many offshoots of this theology now, too, because there's also like faith-based healing, which we'll get into as well. And yep. that's still very prevalent today in a lot of uh, churches out there. Yeah. You know, we just, on my other podcast, Mile Higher, we did a whole episode on televangelists. And so many of them still employ this faith-based healing practice into their sermons and things like that. Yeah, and, people run up to the stage and they do the whole hand on the head thing. Right. And and, that, yeah. and it's kind of like this blend of all of these things from the early 1900s of like y- all you need is your faith in order to heal yourself. So people instead of going to the doctor when they have a serious illness are actually just, you know, praying or having people pray over them in the hopes that, you know, God's going to heal you or your thoughts and intentions are going to heal you rather than actual medicine yeah and it's like the irony of that your prayers will come to fruition if you go to a doctor (laughs) exactly yeah so behind this whole movement was a woman named may otis blackburn and she would take this new culture of spiritualism and create one of the strangest cults the u.s had seen to date so who is may otis blackburn Well, she was born on August 2nd, 1881, in Storm Lake, Iowa. Her father, William Otis, died in a railway accident when she was only four years old. Ever since, 
May often heard voices that helped her deal with the grief. She often spoke to a spiritual dove that gave her comfort, and sometimes she believed it was the voice of God. After her father's death, her mother Jenny remarried to a man named Edgar Holt, and they moved to Huron, South Dakota. Not much is known about the rest of her childhood years, but on October 3rd, 1897, she married a Canadian man named Augustus John Wayland in Jamestown, North Dakota. She was only 16 years old at the time, because, I mean, obviously back in the day, people got married really, really young. John was a big gambler, and this caused a lot of problems in their marriage early on. May was constantly worried about money because John would gamble it all away. They separated only about a year and a half into their marriage, and just before they did, May got pregnant, and John went off to try and find gold out west. May gave birth to their first child, Ruth Angelina Wayland on July 25th, 1899. The couple was still legally married because the cost of divorce was too much for them, so they decided to stay separated but still legally married. Soon after giving birth to Ruth, May got a strange letter in the mail from a doctor in California. The letter said that her husband John had been shot and killed over a business argument about a gold mine. So May left her daughter in the care of her mother and stepfather and headed to Minneapolis. While there, she met a man named Rudolf Schultz, and they started dating and he began taking care of her financially. And eventually, she got married to him on July 1st, 1901. But May never told him that she already had a daughter. Being a single mother in the early 1900s had a negative social stigma. Some thought it was a sign of moral failing or promiscuity. So May claimed that Ruth was just her little sister. And after a few years, May convinced Rudolph to move closer to her family. So in 1905, they relocated to Portland, Oregon. By now, Ruth had almost completely forgotten about her mother, and she had to be reintroduced to her. While living in Portland, Rudolph gave May $125 a week. Doesn't sound like a lot, but back in those days, that was about $3,700. And he only kept about $50 for himself. She convinced him she was better with the money, so he shouldn't worry about their finances. From then on, money wasn't an issue for May, but she wanted even more. So in 1906, she began making moves on a married man named Fremont Everett, who was a lumber tycoon. She then told her husband Rudolph about her first husband, John, saying he had faked his own death. She lied, saying that she had just found out from a letter signed at John Worthy, and she hoped that this would dissolve her marriage to Rudolph since she was still technically married to John. The lumber tycoon Fremont later wrote her a letter saying he was planning on divorcing his wife and that he was in absolute love with May. He even bought a few properties and made May a landlord so she made even more money. One day she asked him how much he was worth and he said $200,000, which is around $7 million today. So very, very wealthy. May was in the middle of three relationships, but she always wanted to follow the money. Which as you can see, this is a trend that May is starting to follow. In 1908, she went to divorce court with Rudolph and she claimed she was still technically married since John Wayland had faked his own death and she was convinced he did it to get out of raising their daughter Ruth. Rudolph then told the court that May was a grifter. She'd been trying to marry as many rich men as she could for the money and even claimed that John wasn't even her first husband. At the end of the long and drawn out court cases, May successfully dissolved all of her previous marriages and started dating Fremont but the relationship didn't last. By May 27, 1915, she married another man named George Edward Bloom. She had found him while reading the newspaper. 
The article she had seen reported that George had gotten a $3,000 settlement from a workplace accident. And since she knew he probably had a ton of money, she pursued him and then married him soon after. She then found out, though, that he had been charged three times with crimes involving underage girls. And it wasn't long before May's new husband was sent to prison. So she divorced him pretty soon after. May had gone through three marriages in 15 years, and she had made a decent amount of money in the process. She then used some of her savings to start her own film company and become a director. And her daughter Ruth, who is now 17, wanted to be a movie star. Just like her mother, she had also heard voices in her head from an early age. They often read poetry and sang songs, and this made her want to become an entertainer. At the time, the movie industry in Portland was trying to compete with Hollywood. And on August 5th, 1917, the silent film, A Nugget in the Rough, was released, which is believed to be Oregon's first official film. Ruth had landed a small part in it, and she was credited as The Nugget. A local theater even installed a new $20,000 pipe organ to play the score live. But unfortunately, the movie flopped, even though May tried to get the local newspapers to feature it. It only played in one theater for a week, and she realized it was nearly impossible to compete with Hollywood. May and Ruth knew they had to pack up and move to LA ASAP if they wanted to make it in the film business. So that's exactly what they did. May didn't realize how competitive it would be in LA, though. And no matter how hard she tried, no one would hire her to direct a movie. So she got lonely, and she spent most of her time inside reading the Bible while her daughter Ruth found work as a taxi dancer. So taxi dancers, they're now called kind of exotic dancers, but the it doesn't really exist anymore today. They were essentially these women who were hired to work in these seedy dance halls. And basically, if men showed up to the dance halls late at night and they didn't have a date, they would just pay the taxi dancers to dance with them. They usually charge them like per song or something like that. Interesting. Hmm. And they're called taxi dancers because they switch partners throughout the night. It's like riding a taxi, essentially, right? <laughs> no pun intended. Riding a taxi. <laughs> yeah. So, and then, yeah, that kind of escalated. Is, so. Yeah. And it's a, it's a bit misconstrued because not all taxi dancers were also sex workers, but it did kind of go hand in hand at the time and it was, they weren't paid very well. So it was a great way to make extra money at the time. Right. This is actually how Ruth eventually met Edgar Jack Rickenbor, and she married him on May 27th, 1919. But just like her mother's marriage, this one didn't last long either. Supposedly Edgar was a jealous type and didn't like that. She was dancing with other men. Surprise, surprise. But she argued that she needed to make money somehow if he wasn't going to provide for her. Sometimes when they fought, he would get violent. So they separated in 1921, but couldn't afford to get divorced. Meanwhile, her mother was also broke. May had spent all of her money on her failed film business. And within a year, Ruth met another man named Arthur Osborne. And he gave her enough money to divorce her last husband, as long as she agreed to stop dancing. She agreed and married Arthur soon after. They weren't always together because Arthur worked across the country as a ranch hand, but he always sent her love letters along with some money. Meanwhile, her mother decided to give up her Hollywood dreams. Instead, she focused on a new project, the Bible. She dove into probably the most interesting yet disturbing book of Revelations and became obsessed with the second coming of Jesus. She also started memorizing passages and filled her Bible with notes and bookmarks. 
Then, May made a claim that would change both her and her daughter's life forever. She claimed that she and Ruth heard a loud shout from the heavens, and they were visited by the angel Gabriel. Apparently, he had glowing wings and a silver sword, and he told them they were the two witnesses that God had chosen to announce the end of the world. And for the next 1,260 days, they would be enlightened with the prophecy. I mean, if you don't believe May already, here's where things get a little bit stranger. Um, so we both know that May and Ruth had heard voices from when they were young, right? Some think this version of Gabriel might have just resulted from a hallucination or this rare disorder that's known as folia du, which is basically means, I mean, it literally translates to madness for two, but it's this shared psychosis between two people. And it usually happens between uh, romantic partners or family members. So basically one person has the delusion and the secondary person latches onto that and kind of confirms it. Is it because that person is somebody they're close to? Exactly. And That's, so they just assume that it's true because they have that relationship with them? Exactly. They, they reinforce it because they usually have, if not something to gain, they usually just have a very strong relationship that they wouldn't want to muddle. Because really the only other option would be to be like, maybe we need to get you help. But right. instead, since they might be both mentally ill, it's easier to just be like, oh yeah, for sure, this is happening. That's, that's what's going on. And we actually have this clip from a 1952 film that captures this disorder on camera. It's between a mother and a daughter. We don't know their names, but the mother is kind of reinforcing the daughter, which you'll see. And the daughter keeps talking about a mental health facility or, or an asylum. And they get a little rambly, but you'll kind of get uh, what the image of what Folia do really is here. That's horrible. You're, you mean here? Oh, not it's this, but this is Douglas Hall. Can't I talk about some other place? Must I always talk about the place I'm in? I'm in Douglas Hall, but I'm referring to a place that was a, I was with the people that have hurt me. In the hospital. All these patients, there's something wrong with them. They're criminals. And I really mean it. Did you know the what criminals? The patients are criminals? The patients are criminals. Yes. Well, I didn't know that. Why? Yes. Why? Because they have hurt me. They really have hurt. If you think I'm kidding you, I'm not kidding you at all. Oh, they know how to, I think they can kill a person by somehow from a distance. You know, if you take a gunman, someone with a gun, a gangster, the police know, well, they know they're looking for him because he's done something everyone could see with a gun. He killed someone. But these people are dangerous. They can kill people at a distance. I don't know how they do it. I really mean it. If, if they did it, if they hurt me with a gun, or I can, I, can exp I can tell the police, then nothing would happen. I don't know how to tell, but they can hurt people. Honestly, they know how. But they haven't got guns. They haven't they got have guns. That's they, just they, it. It's yeah. worse if they yeah. haven't got a gun. Everybody would believe me when I tell them. Because a gangster, the police know they can't find a the gangster. They know he had a gun. They have something on him. But what can you do with people that they haven't got guns, and yet they know how to hurt people out of this? They're hurting you or your mother. They hurt me. I'm, I'm perfectly healthy. Only time when they hurt yeah, me, there's yeah. nothing wrong they, with they, me. They uh, absolutely de make you sick. Doctor, you, or is it only your yeah, me too. Who is hurting you? I don't know. Soon I go. That, that's happened a few times. Soon I go in bed. I feel perfect, health. 
So you could kind of see how the primary, the, the daughter is just rambling and saying these weird things that people are going to kill her. Uh, they have guns in this facility. And the mother is kind of leaning over her shoulder and just being like, yes, yes. Yeah. It's almost like the two of them are living in this disillusionment together. Yeah. And based on what I'm seeing, it seems like they really believe what they're saying too. They're clearly like panicked and yeah, really upset about what they're experiencing. Yeah. And, and I assume the, the man is some type of psychologist or something like that, or maybe I, just an inner, like I think he's just a reporter an or for the, for the film. Interesting. Um, but yeah, you can see like the panic and clearly they're in a safe location, but you could just see her panicking and the mother kind of reinforcing this panic. Like, yes, yes. Everything she's saying is correct. Is there a, like a modern term for this or is this like a, we don't know. It's just kind of this phenomenon. That, yeah. This is, as far as I know, it's still called folly ado, which is a bit insensitive because I think the word madness is, uh, hmm. you know, antiquated kind of term. Like, it almost reminds me of like mass hysteria or something like that, where it's like one person freaks out and then everybody else starts freaking out. It's essentially mass hysteria, but just two people, hmm. but that's the gist of it. Yeah. Very weird. Or, you know, this could be happening between May and Ruth, or they're just trying to scam some people. Yeah, uh, it's always a possibility as well. But according to Ruth and May, the angel Gabriel kept visiting them, and he told them they needed to isolate themselves from the world for the next few years. He promised to feed them information from God Almighty himself. He also told them they needed to write a book titled the seventh trumpet of Gabriel in order to announce the end of the world. Ruth claimed the angel would come into her room and dictate notes to them, and she lived for these moments. Her visions meant everything to her. She had gone through three failed marriages, a failed career in the movie business, and now she was broke. But she believed these visions would turn her entire life around. So they talked about the book of Revelations and specifically the sixth seal, which is meant to trigger a catastrophic event. So in the Bible, it explains that there will be this great earthquake. The sun would become black as sackcloth of hair. The moon would become the color of blood. Stars and comets would fall from the sky. The sky would roll up like a scroll. And this event would signal the end of the world and the second coming of Jesus Christ. So Gabriel and May and Ruth, they also talked about the seven trumpets. Each trumpet would signal a catastrophic event leading to the end of the world and God's final judgment. What's crazy is, though, as I dug into this, there are there have been recordings of these really loud humming kind of trumpet-like yeah. noises throughout the world, especially in like the past five or so years. Um, and they've terrified a ton of people. Some have been like, "Oh God, this is it! This yeah, is like yeah. the seventh trumpets sounding." Um, but here's a few clips.
yeah, there's a lot of debate on what these sounds actually are. I mean, a, a lot of these videos are actually like fake too. There's For a lot sure. of fake videos of these strange sounds, but there's something called skyquakes is what people think um, is actually producing these trumpeting sounds. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I forget the the actual science behind it, but it's it's a phenomenon that occurs um, that that creates these trumpet-like sounds naturally. Naturally, yeah, oh, okay. exactly. But obviously, there's people that believe there's something you know stranger going on with yeah. it which i mean it sounds crazy i mean some of them if it's real right i mean yeah. that'd probably freak me out too for sure and if you're may you it, would absolutely be like hey that's yeah. a trumpet right yeah the whole the whole revelation things and the scrolls and uh you know the sealed scrolls being un, unraveled like i dove really really deep into this as a kid um like a teenager because there's a whole Christian book series. I think I might have mentioned it here on the show before, but the Left Behind series yeah. um, is a uh, a fictional take on the book of Revel Revelations and the second coming of Christ. And the, basically the story is about all these people that, you know, were not really living godly lives. You know, they were kind of involved in the church and things like that. And then the rapture happens, happens the second coming of Christ uh, is also known as the rapture. And basically, all their family get taken to heaven because that's what happens. So basically, what happens is Jesus comes back. He takes all of the Christians off the planet. They all just disappear, like out of their clothes. Planes are going down and stuff because pilots are being pulled out of planes, and it's just kind of all, all hell breaks loose. But then it's about all these individuals that were left behind that have this like, oh shit, it was real. Yeah. You know, I should have never doubted my faith, and now they have to live through the. Uh, trials and tribulations that follow and part of it is basically living through the apocalypse this staged succession of all these horrible things it's like locusts and famine and uh, then it ends up getting worse and worse earthquakes and then the sky goes black and and just over time just gets scarier and scarier but there's also this element of the antichrist too which is interesting so an individual rises up who is human uh, in in human form, but it's essentially the devil yeah. or some version of the devil, which is not the basis for the omen. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So this individual rises up and basically like pretends to like bring everybody together under this one world government and everything. It's it's really it's like this <laughs> new world order conspiracy playing oh, out, yeah. and it's the antichrist. It's it's Satan, and so all these people who thought they were Christian but then got left behind are all like you know. Oh, I believe now, and they have to like save as many people. It's it's this whole long drawn out thing, very traumatizing at the same time. I can't oh, believe I was sure. reading this when I was so young because it's it's heavy stuff. I mean, it, there's like it gets to a point where uh, basically, if they figure out you're Christian, then you get like the guillotine, like they chop your head off. Nice. And that Christian, if you're a Christian, you can walk around and like see crosses on other Christians' oh, wow. foreheads. It's like how you know that you're dealing with other Christians. So it's like this whole story, which it's always like it's dramatized and they definitely added some like fictional things um, on top of the things they pulled from the Bible, but it's, it's very apocalyptic. Yeah. It's, it's Have you ever, end uh, of the world. there's this cool show on HBO's the leftovers. I know I need to watch it. People have been telling me I need to watch it's, that. It's like a twist on it though, because instead of the rapture being like a ton of people are gone, it's actually a small, it's like a million people are gone. And so it's like, wait, they're trying to, put the pieces together is like what was there only really a million people that were worth taking to heaven yeah. all this, yeah. like out of seven eight billion people so it's a it's a good show it kind of reminds me of that a little bit less 
it is like religious, but not the super focal point of it. But that's that reminded me of that. The Left Behind oh, series kind of reminded yeah, me. Yeah, the, the leftovers. leftovers. I gotta watch that. Sounds that's a good one. Life is busy. I know for me personally, the last thing I have time for is planning out my meals for the week and then going to the grocery store, getting all the ingredients, and then going home and cooking a meal. And oftentimes when I do do that, I end up cooking way too much food that usually ends up in the fridge, going moldy, and then in the trash. So lots of waste there. But thanks to HelloFresh, I have simplified my family's meal routine. What I love about HelloFresh is that you just go on the app or the website and you can pick your meals out like weeks and weeks, even months in advance. And then it's just set it and forget it. The boxes just show up right at your door. All the ingredients are pre-portioned for the different recipes. And right now, I think for the past couple months, we've been doing four meals a week. So I've been cooking four HelloFresh meals for my family every single week. And I gotta say, all the recipes that I've had are absolutely delicious. HelloFresh does more than just delicious dinners though. Not only can you take your pick from 40 weekly recipes, but you can choose from over 100 items to round out your order from snacks and easy lunches to desserts. Yeah, I just had these chocolate molten like lava cakes from HelloFresh. They were really, really good. They also have the new fast and fresh options, which are ready in just 15 minutes or less. HelloFresh makes dinner time a snap with deliciously easy options that will please everyone at your table. From fit and wholesome to pescatarian to veggie, they have a meal plan that suits your lifestyle. Plus, you can swap out proteins and sides to your liking. So if you haven't tried HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash LightsOut16 and use code LightsOut16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. Just go to HelloFresh.com slash LightsOut16 and use code LightsOut16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. According to Maeve, after the angel Gabriel finished dictating notes, he would begin singing songs of Cleopatra and Maeve would dance for him. She then claimed he made her the custodian of all the Egyptian dances. While May and Ruth worked on the book, they didn't have enough money to publish it. So they asked Ruth's new husband, Arthur, if he could fund their project. He agreed to take out a loan from his work and fund them, but once they saw a little money coming their way, they wanted even more. They told Arthur that the angels needed more money and commanded May and Ruth to establish a religious order. They sold the idea to Arthur like a business deal. The book would take off and their religious order would grow in popularity. All they needed was the startup money from Arthur. But Arthur was already in debt to his work, and then he got fired for being unable to repay his debt. When he demanded to see how much May had written towards the book, she refused. Which is all very sketchy, right? It's like, hmm, is she really believing in this stuff? Is she really trying to like pursue this spiritual path she's on? Or is she just taking people to the bank and... I think, robbing them, I think there's one right answer here. Yeah. <laughs> Soon after, Arthur's father visited May and Ruth and told them to stop taking advantage of his son. He also demanded all the money back, but May refused. May then called Arthur's mother and said that if Arthur's father ever returned, she would kill her son. Unemployed and brokenhearted, Arthur ended up enlisting in the military and made one last visit to the apartment. But when he arrived, it was empty. May and Ruth moved out and didn't leave Arthur a forwarding address. So they just skipped town. Like, bye. So May and Ruth returned to Portland, Oregon and moved in with May's mother, Jenny. Jenny had divorced her last husband and remarried a man named Walter Blackburn. He was an owner of a successful grocery store chain. And this introduced May to a new stepbrother named Ward. While in Portland, May began laying the groundwork for her new religious order. She would name it the Divine Order of the Royal Arms of the Great Eleven. 
Some just called it the Great Eleven Club or the Blackburn Colt. She then declared herself the High Priestess, and Ruth became the Grand Royal of the Water of the Father's Blood. She also established a rule that no one could touch her but Ruth. May became germaphobic, and she hated when anyone touched her. Others thought it was because she was divine. Even when anyone brought her letters, they couldn't hand them to her directly. They had to place them next to her. And after they built the foundation for the cult, they began networking with the locals. And to attract new followers, May took elements from several popular beliefs at the time, including concepts from the New Thought Movement. She knew how to sound knowledgeable about science and religion, and she promised her followers that if their beliefs were strong enough, it would turn into material wealth. They held an initiation ceremony where their cult grew to about 15 people. They were all dressed in purple robes, and May forced her new followers to rub butter and alfalfa on their feet. At one point, they removed their robes and danced naked around May's mother's house. After new members joined, they were forbidden from having a job outside the cult. So classic cult behavior, isolate. They also had to reject material wealth and give May all of their money and assets. They also had to prove their loyalty by performing a series of rituals and trials that May called their Concord. Most of the Concords were just ways that May could profit from them. May also manipulated her followers into thinking that they were experiencing supernatural events in the house. She played tricks and got them to believe they saw apparitions and heard voices. They would see flashes of light. Things would disappear, and doors would close with no one around. But it was all fake. May had hired her friend Chester, a con man, to set up the tricks throughout the house. As for the book, May and Ruth had only written a few pages. But to trick the followers, they laid a few written pages on top of hundreds of blank pages to make it look like the religious text was massive. And of course, they kept it in a locked chest. None of the members were allowed to read the book or even touch it. And they didn't realize that May would never finish the book the seventh trumpet of Gabriel. But even without the book, May described the key elements of the new religion to her followers. The major one was that the universe could breathe, and when it breathed, it sucked in all the old versions of reality and breathed out new versions. She believed the fourth dimension was regulated by the tree of life, and this tree would allow everyone to achieve eternal life. But this tree was damaged by Adam and Eve when they took the forbidden fruit, so the cycle of eternity was broken. May promised that the tree of life could be repaired, and she was the only one who could fix it. Once the tree healed, then a divine royal order would form, and this would be the royal arms of the Great Eleven, which would be eleven women, including May and Ruth. And all of them would become the superhuman rulers of the universe. After the apocalypse, they would all perish, but the tree of life would resurrect them from the dead. Then they would be granted huge marble palaces in Hollywood, where they would live, and each of the eleven women would also have eleven husbands each. Wow. I mean, she's promising a reality that is <laughs> so far beyond it's crazy. anything realistic. I, it's just shocking to think people could fall for this. Right? Like, we're s superhuman, no one's gonna die, the end of the world's coming, but Jesus will save and this tree will breathe new life into us. And then also everyone's getting 11 husbands too. Yeah. In a mansion in Hollywood. Yeah. Right. Cause after the apocalypse, Hollywood will still be there. <laughs> there will still be mansions in Hollywood <laughs> where you can choose 11 men to serve you day and night. Who would want 11 husbands? Let's be real. Come on. I don't know any woman that would want 11 husbands. That <laughs> sounds just that's like too much major pain in the ass. <laughs>
So even though her ideas were crazy to most people, somehow her new religion gained popularity. The people who were attracted to the cult were people looking for like-minded peers, a family, and some direction in life. May used her social skills and charisma to attract vulnerable followers. Americans had big dreams in 1920s America, and May knew how to feed into those dreams, especially when it came to a woman named Martha Rhodes. They met one day in 1922 during a recruitment tour. Martha was a deeply religious woman. She'd also brought along her husband William, a skilled carpenter, even helped build one of the local churches in town, and together they had two biological daughters and one adopted daughter named Willa. They had all lived in Klamath, Oregon, where William owned a lumber mill, but in 1918, the mill burned down at the hands of an arsonist. After a while, some of the locals began noticing the Rhodes' strange behavior. They had a son who died when he was only nine, and many thought they had refused to take him to a hospital when he was sick. Neighbors also noticed that they would hold strange ceremonies at night in an attempt to try and resurrect their dead son. But they failed to raise him from the dead, so they buried him in the garden in the front yard. Martha told her neighbors that she had successfully raised the dead at least five times with her quote-unquote thought waves, and she claimed she had even raised herself from the dead once. Very bold claim. It doesn't even make sense when yeah. you think about it. No. It's just like she's just like spitballing all this bullshit. Yeah. Somehow people are falling for it. Martha roughly followed the first Church of Christ scientist founded in 1879. Many followers believed that you could heal the sick and raise the dead through faith. Few believed in medical science. When word began to spread that Martha was obsessed with resurrection, local doctors in Klemeth got worried. One wrote to a newspaper saying that three children had died because people were becoming obsessed with faith healing. Some even thought Martha had started a cult of her own at one point. And many wondered if the Rhodes refused to bring their dying son to the hospital because they didn't believe in medical science. This new surge of spiritual faith was becoming a serious issue in local neighborhoods, and May knew how to take advantage of this. Meanwhile, May was getting closer to her new stepbrother, Ward Blackburn, and they even started dating. Ward was known as a strange man around town, and he wore the same clothes every day, which made him smell. There was also rumors that he was a child molester. Others said that May also acted inappropriately around young girls. And supposedly, she once approached a mother and her daughter in a grocery store. She asked if she could take the woman's daughter. When the woman declined and tried to leave, supposedly May tried to abduct the girl. Later, when May met the Rhodes' teenage daughter, Willa, May became obsessed with her. May immediately gave Willa the position of a high priestess in the cult, and she renamed her after her religion's core belief, the Tree of Life. After a while, May's stepfather, Walter Blackburn, ended up joining the cult as well. He then sold his grocery store business and used the money to buy the group a printing press so they could spread their new religion. And now they also had enough money to move back to L.A. Since the newer religious movements were growing more in California, they figured they could get more followers there. In 1922, they rented a massive house at 640 South Manhattan from a woman named Edna Vogel. They also bought another property at 1028 South Olive Street where they started the Walter J. Blackburn Publishing Company. The first thing they printed was an eight-page pamphlet. Even though the followers were promised a book, they took what they could get. May told them the pamphlets were just the beginning and the book would be printed later on. Whenever they asked about it, May said it was a work in progress, of course. So all they had were these small pamphlets. They were filled with nonsense and the followers were forced to pass them out on the streets. Meanwhile, Ruth married a 17-year-old named Samuel Rizzio, 
on May 24, 1924. Samuel was raised as a strict Catholic, and his family had connections to the criminal group the Black Hand. But when Ruth was introduced to the family, she was welcomed with open arms. They knew about the cult and the book that was a work in progress, and even though they were Catholic, they believed the book would be groundbreaking. And Ruth even promised their son Samuel a cut of the prophets. But soon Ruth claimed that Samuel got abusive and struck her in the head during an argument. Samuel and Ruth would get into heated arguments because he thought the cult was nonsense. And then she told Samuel's family that he had packed up his things and left her. But she lied. Samuel had actually come back and apologized. According to Ruth, he said he wanted to officially join the cult. So they were going to perform an initiation ceremony for him. And it all started with a cult member named Eleanor Zandrowski. And she worked as a pharmacist. In July 1924, May swore Eleanor to secrecy before telling her the angel Gabriel commanded that Samuel be killed. Plus, he said that Eleanor was chosen to slip Samuel some poison. At first, Eleanor didn't want any part of it, and she even considered leaving the cult immediately. But May used her persuasion skills and eventually convinced Eleanor to stay and go through with it. May often reminded her members that if they ever left the faith, they would be financially ruined, isolated, and even die. This was how she controlled her followers. But she also realized that she almost scared Eleanor away. So the second time she approached her, May told Eleanor that the angel Gabriel only meant that Samuel's death was symbolic. Samuel was a Catholic, so May now interpreted his death as him disconnecting from his faith so that he could finally join the Great Eleven. By now, Eleanor didn't know what to believe. May then told her that the angel sent her a vision of a white vial of poison that was untraceable. So now the angels are teaching her how to kill people. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Very godly. And Eleanor needed to find it for her because she worked at a pharmacy. Then May told Eleanor that if she ever told anyone about their conversations, she would kill her. After this, Eleanor quickly told her husband and they planned on leaving the cult as soon as possible. But they realized that they had already given a ton of money to May. So Eleanor demanded that May pay her back. But May told Eleanor that her husband was only tricking her into leaving and her true husband was meant to be another cult member. But these games did not work on Eleanor. She could now see through all of May's lies. The next day, May sent one of her followers, Mary Stewart, to the pharmacy where Eleanor worked. And Mary demanded that Eleanor give her a bottle of chloroform and the untraceable poison. Out of fear, she gave Mary the chloroform. But for the poison, she just handed her a bottle of water with food coloring in it. Once Eleanor got home, she and her husband left the cult and tried to get as far away as possible. But that night, May took Samuel to a beach in Santa Monica. The plan was to perform a symbolic death ritual in order to get rid of Samuel's Catholic faith. Some accounts from the cult members said that Samuel performed the ritual and drove himself home, and then he randomly disappeared. Others say that May murdered him and hid his body, but either way, Samuel was never seen again. Samuel had been close with his family and his mother Frances thought it was strange that he had just disappeared and never contacted him. She sent him letters, but he didn't respond to any of them. Samuel's younger brother Frank also knew his brother would never just leave like that. So he spent the next 10 months looking for his brother. He even got a job as May's personal driver. And when he was allowed in the house, he searched the rooms until he eventually found some of his brother's possessions. May and Ruth eventually convinced him that Samuel had left his things there because he planned to return one day, and they even showed him a letter he supposedly wrote saying he was leaving. 
but the rest of the Rizzio family wasn't convinced, so they filed a police report. But one night, an officer knocked on the front door of the Rizzio's house. He told them to forget about their son and warned them to stay out of May Blackburn's business. Of course, this police officer, a real one would never say something like that, but this officer was a member of the Great Eleven in disguise. And after this, the Rizzio family stayed quiet. Once the talk of Samuel's disappearance died down, May moved to another mansion at 427 North Vermont. She also took her mother, Jenny Blackburn, and her new husband, Ward Blackburn, who was also her stepbrother. She had seduced him into the cult by promising him wealth and power, and they got married in 1924. May thought their relationship worked well. Ward was repulsive, he had terrible hygiene, and it was perfect because May didn't want a physical relationship with a man anyway. Her fear of being touched and her germophobia grew worse over the years, and since he smelled so bad, she had a great excuse to avoid him. As for her mother, she was getting old and May was now her primary caretaker. And one day, May, Ruth, and Ward chained and padlocked Jenny to her bed. And not just for one or two days. They chained her to her bed for 75 days straight. But Jenny never protested. She actually enjoyed it. As she was a firm believer in her daughter's divine powers. And she believed this was her rite of passage into the new faith. This was her concord. A newspaper later quoted Jenny saying, quote, during that time, I was never happier. The angel Gabriel finally released me. That is, spiritually. I had the keys to the padlock. The chains didn't hurt, and they were long enough for me to get downstairs. Jenny truly believed this brought her closer to God. As for Ward, he only had a few small duties in the house. He mostly just sat by the window all day and counted how many cars passed by. He also kept his eye on the sky for any change in weather. So May grew her cult following, Ward counted cars, and Jenny enjoyed her time chained to her bed. By November 1924, they gained two new followers, Clifford and Alice Dabney. And Clifford immediately became a major player in the cult because he had something that May desperately wanted. Clifford was the nephew of Joseph Benjamin Dabney, who made millions of dollars in the California oil business. So Clifford was rich and well-connected, and May loved the idea of having him as a follower. She told him that her book was now titled The Great Sixth Seal, and in it, she would solve all the mysteries of the universe. She even promised Clifford that she knew where to drill for oil. May would say anything to get what she wanted. Yeah. Just blatantly lie, but was somehow convincing enough to make people believe her. Yeah. Which just shows her what a charismatic person I guess she is. I would have loved if we had. I know. I wish we had some footage, footage of her. Of it's her. so long ago. Yeah. yeah. Mary was obsessed with lost measurements, and she claimed that Gabriel had given her access to holy measurements that could lead them to oil and gold deposits. Interesting knowledge for an angel to be sharing. So Clifford invested his money in the cult, and May appointed him president. With the money, May bought new clothes and a new car. She was so protective over the car that one time a group of children touched the car's hood. So May got out and forced the children to slap themselves as punishment. But her strange aggressive behavior rarely turned away followers. Martha and William Rhodes had been devout followers for about two years, and they always turned a blind eye to May's behavior. At the time, they still lived up in Oregon with her teenage daughter, Willa. Willa was still a high priestess and the tree of life for the cult. May promised them the solar system would be in perfect condition. By February 1925, and this is when she would release her long-awaited book, 
So the Rhodes family decided to relocate to LA so they could be together with the other cult members. But it turned out that May wasn't the only faith leader in the town that mentioned February 1925 as being a sacred time. There was another woman in LA named Margaret Rowan, who was once a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But church officials got worried when Margaret began to preach that the end of the world would be at midnight on February 6, 1925. Once the newspapers caught on, they called her the prophetess of doom. She called on a thousand followers to sell their belongings and come to LA for the end of the world. May Blackburn tried to follow the media hype by announcing the publication of her book. The popularity of both cults grew in the media. But of course, as this happens every single time Sony predicts the end of the world, February 6 came and went, and absolutely nothing happened. So the big question is, why are religious fanatics and cults so obsessed with doomsday? It seems like we've covered plenty of doomsday oh, yeah. cults here. I There's feel like most more. cults are centered around this doomsday idea. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's on purpose. Yeah. Um, one of the primary ways is that it attracts followers rather than going out and searching for followers. You kind of just announce doomsday people start hearing and then they believe they're like these chosen ones that are also supposed to, in this case, survive the end of the world or they perish, but then they're resurrected. They believe that they're the chosen ones. So it's an easy way just to start attracting people. And then once they gain the trust of the leader, their beliefs deepen and strengthen. It's a strategy where the cult doesn't really have to reach out. Instead, they just say these very crazy things and people come to them. Also, the concept of doomsday, it really opens up people to change. Like, if, if the end of the world is coming, uh, you really have to stop and reconsider your life and, and what you're doing wrong and doing right. So people like that, especially in the terms of spirituality, it's very self-reflective time if the doomsday is coming around the corner, right? Well, it's like you're preying on people's number one fear. Yeah. Death. Yeah, at the end. Right? So, and life as you know it being over. So it's, a, it's, it's this ability to radically transform somebody very quickly based on this belief that I think is so appealing to cult leaders. Cause it's like you said, it's the easiest path to go Yeah. versus being like a, just a self-help person or something like that. I think that's a harder road. You got to do better marketing and things like that to really get people to believe that you're going to help improve their current life. But if you're like, Hey, the world's going to end, I know when it's going to end and I know what's going to happen after come and follow me and we'll go, you know, we'll ride this out together. Yeah, exactly. It seems like the, path of least resistance right? yeah and it's it's very enticing right to yeah. sell that idea to people i think it's also because people always want answers right it's kind of like what religion provides at some extent it's like why why do you know churches don't need to do tons and tons of marketing to get people to go to their church it's like they you know they provide answers to questions that people have on a day-to-day -day basis and it's also like oh there's other people there that are like-minded i think makes it more appetizing for people to want to try it out because it's like oh all these people are there they all gather together and they you know talk about this subject and they're all happy and you know you can you, if you kind of see that from the outside looking in it can you know especially if you're in a vulnerable state or you know you're going through something in your life it's very easy to be like i want what they have right i want you know that joy and peace that they have 
you know, if you ever talk to a a religious person and, you know, they're kind of explaining their beliefs to you, oftentimes it's, it's pretty convincing. It's like, oh, wow. Yeah. And maybe there is something I'm missing. That concept of community too, like you were touching on, like having these like-minded people together and peers, I think a lot of people who are vulnerable and are attracted to cults are looking for that sense of community. They might be even like May, it was very lonely. So it's like this way of getting a community together, even outside of the spiritual religious aspect of it. It's just to get a core community of people together, which is also attractive, right? Yeah. Well, especially when you're talking about the end of the world, you want to die alone at the end of the world or you want to be with, with people that get it right. That understand what's going on and potentially have answers to what's next and yeah you're gonna want to go that route probably then. yeah it's like look the the mysteries of the world aren't actually mysteries we have all the answers here just come and give me all your money <laughs> yeah train your you. pocketbook here <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll hook you up yeah i also love the fact that she was just a little side note i love the fact that she was like hey uh you can no longer work outside of this function you everything you do has to be for the cult um so get rid of your material possessions but also at the same time your material possessions will come back to you. We'll get a shitload of material possessions at the end of all this. Uh, I just like that little hypocrisy. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But yeah, doomsday, you know, selling this concept of doomsday. I mean, not to sound like an edge Lord, <laughs> but you could make the argument that Christianity is fundamentally a doomsday cult, right? Like the entire book of revelation is essentially like what happens at the end of the world when the apocalypse comes, who gets chosen, who doesn't. Right. It's interesting how that is the last book of the Bible too. Yeah. Like that's where the holy book ends. Which is like, that's like where the, your main point is supposed to be, right? It's Hopefully like at by the end that of the point, book. Yeah. You believe. Yeah. Because here's what happens <laughs> if you don't. Yeah. Get ready. That, that was a, what was always so interesting to me is like, you know, you go through, you go through the Bible. There's, there's a lot of, a lot of good stories, a lot of good morals and ethics and things like that. There's also oh, yeah. a lot of like really fucked up shit in there as well for sure but then you know you make it through the new testament and you know you learn all about jesus and what jesus had to teach us and then it's like all right well jesus takes off you know jesus is like all right did my work peace (laughs) yeah i'm going back to heaven see you see you guys later and then after that it's like all right now we're all just here existing hoping that we make it to heaven and you know if jesus comes back we want to be ready for that ride oh yeah and people thought after christ you know ascended into heaven people were like he's coming back in like a few days yes yeah people were like get everyone get their shit together this is happening very soon days passed weeks passed months passed centuries passed thousands of years passed right and so we're all still waiting we're still waiting (laughs) i I got my bags packed i'm ready to go man i'm ready to (laughs) to fly fly away well it's uh people were attracted to it and it's funny because I don't quote me on this, but I this history class I took a long time ago. Um, the the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, like the Gospels in the New Testament, yeah. wasn't really written for like seventy to one hundred and twenty years after Jesus had died. Yeah, because of that exact reason, they were like, "He's coming back," and we're just get, why write a book when we're just gonna get sucked up to heaven? There's no point yeah. in writing a book, so that's why they didn't for so long. Essentially, that's the that's the theory, but. Uh, it's it's just incredibly enticing this thing that the end is coming and i want to be on that bus so bad so people are desperate for it yeah uh, and they'll do do anything for it and oftentimes they'll do heinous heinous things to other humans 
in order to make make it happen for them or so they think right for sure through these rituals and and sacrifices and things like that i mean it's been done not only by cults but there's whole civilizations that participated in in those types of things i mean we talked about uh the mayans and the aztecs and things like that um you know doing sacrifices and things like that not necessarily about jesus coming back but just like the end of the world yeah. and you know the mayan calendar and everything that's yeah. always been a debate of like people you know, do horrific things end. to like secure their their stability right yeah because it was in i think it was the aztecs they were like we need to kill we need to make a child sacrifice because the sun might not rise tomorrow right right it was like this very dire thing it's, it's just interesting to me that it all comes back to fear yeah that, like everything revolving around doomsday and the actions taken to hopefully prevent yourself from going through that all stems from fear for sure and yeah. that's ultimately what doomsday cult leaders use to their advantage is like this fear and and then providing a solution to that fear and so you get somebody in the right state of mind where they're truly afraid of this and they're truly um believe in it then that solution looks pretty good and i'm and i'm talking from personal experience like I've, i was a uh, a christian for almost 20 years and that was like at the root of my belief was if i don't believe in this i'm gonna go to hell and i don't Same. want like I, that is the last place i want to be right like, yeah i know way too much about that place <laughs> yeah. it don't sound fun yeah no. so it's like then then it's almost like you're believing out of fear which exactly is not really the point but ultimately i feel like that's that's what it was for me and is that i was fearful of if i die on my way to school today where am i gonna go right yeah. and like hearing sermons of that it's like you know if you died today where would you go yeah you know and it's kind of like it's crazy to instill that in a kid right yeah it's i mean it's i, I use the word spiritual trauma and i truly believe that's what it is because i mean it's something i still deal with almost every week is like that comes back in my subconscious and in my dreams a lot and and i'm just like damn this i don't think this is i'm ever going to shake this so i just have to do my best to to deal with it but yeah it's always there there's always this fear of like is there hell if if i'm there, if i'm you know if i don't believe in god am i gonna go to hell and they're like never leaves you always the possibility but i don't know i don't really believe in it you can just turn me into vapor shoot my body in the space or whatever <laughs> at the end i think it's just we're here for the moment and it's over but i mean that was instilled as me as a catholic hell was like this huge concept right or purgatory too that's a scary oh, concept man, yeah as well. you're just stuck in a waiting room oh, for god indefinitely i know until someone makes a choice my i remember talking to my grandparents growing up and my grandfather would always be like he's like a devoted catholic his whole life he's like yeah i'm going to purgatory I'm like what <laughs> yeah and i remember my dad would have to explain to me because my dad grew up catholic but he he was like not about it he left the catholic church and there was always this feud between my dad and his parents because he left the catholic church but he would tell me he's like yeah yeah your grandpa thinks he's gonna go to purgatory and i'm like what what's purgatory he's like he's explained it just like that he's like think of like a hospital waiting room. yeah it's that yeah and you're just there and someone finally lets you in Until, or not you yeah. could be there for a very 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 long time yeah. yeah and i never really understood like what so there's this medium place like there is a theory which i kind of like this theory that this is purgatory we're in it 
yeah. I like to think this is hell. And <laughs> I mean, shit, the way that the way that the world is, man, sometimes I, I truly believe like we are all living in hell. And and like there's obvi- obviously it's not like every day is absolutely tormenting and terrible, but I, I think there's there's, you know, glimpses of heaven, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Throughout your life. But our our existence here for the most part is hell and like trying to reach a higher a higher place a higher level of of, of existence and yeah but yeah well working with danny every day sure seems like hell <laughs> thanks man i appreciate that no but we uh, Dan, daniel's an angel what are you talking he about is, man? he is he is he doesn't Gabriel deserve himself. to be here yeah. <laughs> so we got a little off track there um but yeah, that's, I mean, to wrap it around, that was, uh, that's the idea, right? Is that the doomsday is judgment day is why people are attracted to these things because they want their slot secured. And when those days come and go though, as we we're going to see with Margaret, this other cult leader in LA at the time, which we've also seen in other cults that we've been around. What was that one in Japan that we covered? Oh, Shoko. Yeah, Shoko. Yeah. yeah. And he wanted to like start this huge war and stuff. And then uh, that other one that we covered in Canada um, was a big doomsday cult. But what happens when doomsday, that day that they set comes and goes, is basically just cognitive dissonance, which is this idea that basically actions, thoughts, and beliefs are inconsistent. But since this core concept of our belief, means so much we would rather just change our thoughts and behaviors and kind of look the other way because it means so much to us we want to get back to this like harmonious state so if february 6th is the day comes and goes and you start having doubts about your leader sometimes it's easier to just be like there's something else at play that i'm not understanding i know that this leader is right and i'd rather just since I've found stability here, I want to keep it stable. So I will continue to believe that. And some people even say after those moments, their faith gets even stronger. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I think to most people surprising. Yeah. That you would think, Oh, this, that should be the moment where you're like, I'm out. Which I think for some people, it is the moment that they're out. But I think for a lot of people, it's scarier to go back to how they were before joining the group. Right. And live with that doubt constantly. Exactly. When they feel like they're being led by somebody who's more enlightened than they are. And this, the whole concept of doomsday just doesn't die either. Like, we just see it over and over and over again. Like, it's constantly um, almost like reincarnating itself, like over and over again. There's always somebody who's trying to use doomsday as a way and means to control people. Yeah. And, and what you, and sometimes, they do truly believe in what they're preaching, but oftentimes they use it as a tool to manipulate and take advantage of people right. as in May's case. But it's just always interesting to me that this is just this, this concept of doomsday will never die. It will, as long, I think as long as there's humans on this earth, this idea of like the apocalypse and doomsday will always be there. Yeah. And obviously like media, Hollywood movies love oh, to play sure. on that. And yeah some of my favorite shows and movies are wrapped around doomsday or the apocalypse or sort of this reset of the world. Um, 
but yeah, I don't think doomsday cults are ever going to not be a thing. Yeah. There's no, no doomsday for doomsday. You could say. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so while all these people are obsessed with doomsday, May was at least smart enough to not set a date. She's like, well, I still haven't published my book. Uh, Gabriel hasn't fed all the information to me. So she knew how to kind of work the system in her favor and be like, we're not even going to set a date. And let's just continue to grow and get more money. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately there's, I mean, I can think of a handful of people, I won't name any names on online and on YouTube that have whole careers on this concept of, of like, I have this knowledge or like a big one in the world of ufology now is individuals that claim to have contacts with extraterrestrials and a part of these councils and you know, they're in these secret programs. And so they have this like secret knowledge that nobody else has because they were like chosen, you know, from a young age to interact with these beings and things like that. And this is like a huge, huge thing. And that's like it, when you're saying this, this is like verbatim May Blackburn story. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, yeah. It's, and that's the thing is like people just like continue this, this cycle. And I think they probably learn from past people that did it. Like, how can I do it better? Right. Yeah. But like, it's amazing to me whenever I go and like watch these people on YouTube and I read through the comments and I'm just blown away at the number of people that are so steadfast in, in their belief of this person that they truly are special or like there's people that there's, there's guys out there that are like, they're getting visions and prophecies and they claim they're the reincarnated, re reincarnated, uh, Edgar Casey and you know, the famous mystic. Uh, and it's like no proof whatsoever, but yeah. it's all you have to do is claim that you're, you're this and people will follow if you're convincing enough. Yeah. And that's what's so dangerous is that there's so many people that are so convincing and manipulative that they can really like fool people. Yeah, charisma is a big yeah, part charisma. of it. Yeah, charisma. Like, it's, 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 it's like its own phenomenon, I feel like. Yeah. And people will find any niche that they can in order to carve out a role for themselves where people will follow, people will support. If I write books, you will buy, you will read, which will only reinforce your belief in me. And we'll just keep it going. Yeah. Especially, it was interesting to me because a lot of these individuals got really big during the QAnon phase of the really? of society. Yeah, I guess conspiracy theories were at an all-time high. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like conspiracy, when conspiracy theorists really went down the rabbit hole and, and then, you know, took a hard left and yeah. started like really making up some wild stuff. And so it's 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 even weird to me how that whole thing kind of died down which is its own phenomenon in a way um because people truly believe that q was this you know military insider person who was like giving leaking all this information through 4chan and everything which obviously i don't know whether or not that was true or not and i'm not not putting my opinion out there on that but it's just amazing to me how with very little proof people will follow yeah well you could have a faceless yeah, ambiguous yeah. prophet, anonymous so person. Yeah, that like may or may not truly exist, and people will still latch speaks on to through it. a forum in like cryptic text. And right, people are like, oh, this is crazy. Like, yeah. this guy's special. Yeah, but they have no idea. It could be anybody out there impersonating this individual. It's just, yeah, it, it's just this whole human phenomenon that we and and I don't say this to to like sound like 
I wouldn't necessarily like fall for this stuff because I, I oh, have, no. yeah. it's easy to get sucked into it. Like I totally like a couple years ago was getting super sucked down into the conspiracy world and was like, there were times where I was like, oh dude, I don't even know if this is, I don't believe in anything anymore. <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. all fake. This is all constructed and you know, I'm being manipulated by. Yeah. E- even cults. I don't want to come off as like someone who wouldn't be susceptible to this. I think we're all, Absolutely. we all have something in us that I, I listened to this heaven's gate podcast uh that was like this it was like a 10 episode podcast it was really good and they started off like don't be fooled that you don't think you could get sucked into this because yeah. just there are cer- certain people at certain moments in their life we're all kind of susceptible to, to to things like this so i i i really believe that i think we all are susceptible to to cults and to people that claim things and claim they have knowledge i mean it's it's just, I think the way we're wired because we're all like kind of like on this information seeking mission. Yeah, we want answers. We want yeah. answers. Like that's just who we are as human beings. We just want to know the mysteries of the universe. Yeah. And if there's somebody out there who can provide, you know, an, a better understanding of what's actually going on, whether it's with the universe itself, heaven, hell, the government, whatever it may be, aliens, like, of course we're going to be interested. It's going to intrigue you. Yeah. And then if they're good at what they do, they will convince you if you fall, if you watch enough and listen to them enough, you'll be like, oh my God, maybe it's weird how it works. They're like, it's just a mind thing that they do. It's like they hook you in on something and then they slowly, it slowly just sort of starts reprogramming your brain. You're like, oh wow, this makes a lot more sense to me. I can't believe I ever thought that before or yeah, it's, it's crazy. I'm researching them enough now that when Josh kicks me off the podcast, <laughs> I'm just going to go start my own cult. I know the, I know the groundwork now. What would be your cult? Ooh, that's a good one. It'd have to be music oriented. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. I would love to just somehow like. You communicate through the drums. Yeah, you play like yeah. drum beats and people are like, hmm. Yeah. This is how God speaks through me. Yeah. In rhythm. Yeah. It's hard to decipher, but yeah, that'd be a good one. But anyways, we got way off off track way here. Off. And hopefully this all I mean this all really plays into to May's story really cuz she's I mean one of the OGs of yeah. of uh American cults. So so circling back to May's story. Before February 6th, May publicly claimed that Margaret Rowan was wrong. She said the world wouldn't end that day and she believed it would be the beginning of a new spiritual era. Meanwhile, May moved the Rhodes family into a property she owned in L.A. When they got there, May's mother, Jenny, was finally unshackled from her bed. Can't believe they did that to to Jenny. And she brought Willa a housewarming gift. When the Rhodes opened the door for Jenny, she brought in seven puppies. They were each named after the seven tones of the musical scale. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti. Nice. Beautiful singing. The puppies were overwhelming at first, but it reminded the family how much May loved Willa, and everything seemed to be going well. But soon the dynamic of the entire cult would change when tragedy struck. The Christmas holiday 1924, Willa developed severe pain in her gums and teeth. She complained to her mother Martha, but she didn't believe in medical science. She just trusted faith and prayer. So the family tried to pray her dental problems away, but they only got worse. Martha refused to take her teenage daughter to the dentist or doctor, and her health rapidly declined. And sadly, she died on New Year's Day, 1925, and she was only 14 years old. 
The Rhodes had tried to bring their son back to life a few years ago, but failed. Now Martha was determined to bring her daughter back. She convinced her husband she had done it before so she could do it again. But when she failed, she contacted May and told her the news. May was devastated. Her tree of life was now dead. Willow was crucial to the cult because without the tree, there was no way for the group to achieve immortality. So May had to think on her feet. She told Martha she contacted the angels and asked them why God took Willa. And the angels told her that Willa would rise from the dead one day. But they would have to wait until the second coming of Jesus. They would all die and be resurrected, so they just needed to preserve her body until then. And she told the Rhodes to keep Willa's death a secret. Then they moved Willa's body to May's new home while most of the other cultists didn't even know. They preserved her corpse in a bathtub with hundreds of pounds of ice before moving her into a bedroom they called her sleeping chamber. Then they took the seven puppies from the Rhodes' house and killed them with chloroform as a sacrifice to God and then placed the carcasses around Willa's body. And they kept her there for about five months on ice. Then they moved to a Santa Monica property, which is now the Earth Cafe. And then they moved to Venice Beach. Both times they moved, they took Willa out of the ice bath and propped her up in the car so it looked like she was still alive. When they got to their new home, they placed her back in the ice bath. It was here May claimed that the angels told her to finally bury Willa's body. Or as you can probably imagine, it started decomposing like crazy. Right. And they were like, May was like, yeah, we can't have. We got to get rid of this. Yeah. Somebody's going to find out about this. And, yeah. You know. What's ridiculous is, have you ever seen Weekend at Bernie's? Oh, man. It's the guy that, that dies and they just slap right. sunglasses on him and yeah. act like he's still alive. Yeah. I mean, that's that's so disturbing. Though. That's obviously a comedy, but this is so disturbing because I imagine your daughter dying and then you keep her propped up in the car when you're moving her and like you keep having her around. Like, What would you have to be going through in your mind to do that? And they're just keeping her on ice, which I can only imagine is not cold enough to keep her like completely right. reserved or frozen for months. So she has to be starting to decompose. Like, I'm sure it's it was messy every time they moved her. Yeah. But yeah, God, it's just like, and they just keep doing it. They just keep listening to me. They're like, okay, we got to move her. Yeah. Willa had been dead for over a year. And they finally buried her on February 10th, 1926. May embalmed her skin with a homemade concoction and placed her in a coffin that was lined with copper on the inside. They laid her on her back with her knees pulled up to her chest and sealed the lid with nails. Then they wrapped the dead puppies in blankets and placed them in a separate coffin. After hauling both coffins into her parents' bedroom, they carried them through a trap door in the floor and placed them underneath the floorboards. The Rhodes planned on living here with the body until the end of the world. So they sort of buried her, just really kind of just put her beneath the floorboards, but not actually like a true burial. Yeah, at least they got the embalming process done. Cause Which, like, with a homemade concoction, who knows yeah. you know, even if that worked or not. Right. Even though the cult was getting stranger by the day, it had grown to 100 members. After May ramped up her preachings on Doomsday, she noticed she attracted a lot more followers, and they began referring to her as the North Star or Mother. None of them seemed to worry about the book that May promised to publish a year ago. I guess all the crazy stuff going on, they probably forgot about it. And they went along with the outdoor rituals they held in the backyard. But neighbors began to notice their strange behavior. May didn't want to draw too much attention because now they had a teenager's body hidden in the house. 
So Clifford Dabney, the man with a lot of money and connections, donated 164 acres of land out in the Simi Valley, about 40 miles northwest of LA. Now the cult finally had its own compound, and they didn't have to worry about nosy neighbors. When they moved, they lived in tents while they built up the compound through 1927, adding 12 cabins and two houses. They also built up ranches for horses, mules, and other livestock that would be used for blood sacrifices, and may use the followers as free labor, of course. And she stole most of the wood from a local lumber company. They named the compound The Work, short for The Work of God. May had big dreams for the compound, including a pool, printing shop, and a tennis court. She also wanted multiple refrigerators where she could store dead cultists before doomsday. But their biggest priority was her temple, the Golden Throne. It was white and built in the shape of a crescent, and they put as much money into the temple as they could. They installed stained glass windows and detailed wood molding and furniture, and they also bought a gold lampshade in the shape of a lion's head and a 500-pound Golden Throne and place them inside. But May then demanded that they seal the temple. She said they would only need it after doomsday when Jesus would return. Besides her doomsday prophecies, May loved to preach about metaphysics and the fourth dimension. But her sermons began to grow old for many of her followers. People like the Rhodes were more interested in Christian science and resurrection. And May could see her group slowly dividing into two. So she quickly formed a new religious order. She was quite quick on her feet. It was called the Church of the Divine Science of Joshua the Branch, the Headstone of the Corner. I wonder how she came up with these names. I'm like, what on earth does that even mean? May registered her new cult as a nonprofit organization, though. This was not the same as the Grade 11 Club, but it shared 74 members. Meanwhile, they kept upgrading the compound, and as more money flowed into the cult, May's demands got even stranger. Since she was obsessed with money, she began restricting her followers' diets. It was against the rules to eat apples because she thought that it was the forbidden fruit that caused the fall of man. Olives were also banned because olive written forward can be interpreted as O-Live. But when spelled backward, it contains the word evil. Hellman's mayonnaise was forbidden because hell was in the title. Oh no. Not the mayo, man. <laughs> Walnuts were forbidden because they had the word wall. Don't know why that is. That's weird. Wall. And they couldn't eat T-bone steaks because the T disrespected the crucifixion of Jesus. I bet you anything she ate that, though. Oh, in secret? For <laughs> in sure. Secret, she's like, mm, all the T-bone steak for me. Oh, yeah. And if they ate the pie, it had to be made without sugar. In hindsight, May only had these strange dietary restrictions to save money. And the more they fell for May's tricks, the more loyal they became. She was perfect in their eyes, even when they heard rumors that she might have been abducting people in town. On February 3rd, 1927, 29-year-old Louise Voles mysteriously went missing. She wasn't a member of the cult, but she lived in the Simi Valley with her husband Ernest and their one child Ernest Jr. That night after dinner it had been raining, and her husband later said that Louise had something he called a rain complex. Anytime it rained, she'd go outside and enjoy it. Ernest Jr. watched while his mother danced in the rain, and within a few seconds a mysterious black car pulled up next to her and several dark figures dragged her into the car, and she was never seen again. It was later discovered that this car's description matched the black car that May owned, but the abduction was never officially tied to her. Still, many suspected that the cult was somehow involved. They had moved to Simi Valley so they wouldn't draw attention to themselves, but the cult slowly began falling apart. It all began on New Year's Day, 1928. May called on Clifford Dabney to come see her. 
She discovered he hadn't told her about an oil lease he was holding on to, so she commanded him to hand it over. This was Clifford's last stream of income that he hadn't given to the cult. She got so heated that she began tearing out her own hair, and before he could even respond, she told him he would die if he refused. By now, Clifford was terrified of May. He knew others had gone missing or died, so he signed over the lease that was worth $18,000. He didn't want to get in her way. None of her followers did. Something in May had changed over the years and her greed had completely taken control. By February 27th, a Beverly Hills car dealer visited the compound to deliver a car. And when he got there, a young woman ran up to him. She seemed terrified. And the young woman said she was scared for her life. She even tried to get in the car so the dealer could get her off the compound. But then two cult members with guns ran up to the car and removed her. The dealer never found out who the woman was and he quickly left the compound. And by the next month, another cult member died. Francis Turner was almost completely paralyzed, couldn't speak, and struggled with fits of choking and coughing. Her sister Margaret had been a member of the cult for a while, and she begged May to cure Francis. When she arrived at the compound, members carried Francis up a hill toward a brick oven, and they placed Francis inside the inferno. And they watched as the heat began burning her skin. She then began choking and fell silent and they left her for two whole days, and no one knows exactly when she died. Her official death certificate said she had died from leakage of the heart, but her body was never officially examined. When they asked May why she died, she said it was part of God's plan. The cult members then used the hot bricks from the oven to build a pathway on the compound. May feared that Francis's death would turn the cult against her, so she created several trials to keep them in line. Once she ordered William Rhodes to take a box, the size of a human body up to Big Bear Lake, and she ordered him not to look inside. He obeyed. On another day, May took two cars, two mules, and eight cultists to Stovepipe Wells Hotel in Death Valley, about 240 miles from the compound, and she told the followers that came with her that this was for another spiritual rite of passage. She explained it was a religious mathematical trial, and the followers must escape the jaws of death. May had nicknamed the two mules the jaws of death. Their goal was to make it back to the compound alive. It was a long trip for the mules, and they could only ride a few dozen miles a day. And after days of traveling, everyone made it safely back to the compound. Supposedly, they held a ceremony where an orgy took place. And then May ordered the followers to sacrifice the two mules in a bloody ritual. The eight cultists were just relieved that this strange trial was finally complete. But by now, Clifford Dabney was fed up with May, and he refused any more of her worthless concords. The final straw was when he received an auto repair bill for May's car that cost $2,700 in today's money. He had already given the Colt almost everything he had, and he began having strong doubts about the Colt and May's use of his money. The promised book still wasn't published and people were disappearing and dying, and May kept asking him for more money. Plus, she had promised to give him the coordinates of the gold and oil that was supposed to make him rich, but of course she never did. So he and his wife decided it was time to leave the Colt. Then he tried to press charges against May for fraud, but the police didn't take him seriously. They figured there was no way a lady like May could have actually conned Clifford out of so much money, and it sounded like he willingly gave the cult everything he had. On September 17, 1928, Clifford used his connections to get the local DA to investigate May and the cult. News spread quickly, and the LA Times covered the story on October 4th, and then May and Ruth were arrested and the news article caught the locals' attention. 
This got someone to call in and give an anonymous tip that Willa's body was hidden beneath her parents' floorboards. Police later searched the house in Venice Beach where Martha and William still lived. They quickly admitted to putting their daughter's body under the floorboards 14 months ago, but only because May told them to. They confessed, but only after believing the police wouldn't dig up their daughter's coffin, as they didn't want her disturbed before her resurrection. But obviously, the police still broke through the door on the bedroom floor and retrieved the body. When Willow's body was finally uncovered, the homemade embalming had actually worked pretty well. Even her skin was still intact. Some reports said that she looked like a porcelain doll. Journalists photographed the police hauling out the coffin and uncovering the seven dog carcasses alongside Willow's body. The story got so big, the Washington Post and the LA Times ran it. Every local newspaper also hopped on board, but this led to media hysteria and misinformation being spread. Once the Rizzio family heard that the cult was being investigated, they told the police they also wanted the cult to be investigated for the disappearance of their son, Samuel. The police began investigating the cult's properties, but came up with nothing. Meanwhile, police invited journalists to visit the compound with them, and the media frenzy continued. Photographers took pictures of the strange golden lion headlamp shade, and police also discovered dozens of dog graves on the property. Many believe these dogs were sacrificed during blood rituals, and some believe the cult was connected to the body of a John Doe that was found mutilated inside an abandoned chicken coop at Huntington Beach, about 80 miles from their compound. But there was a lack of evidence to really tie this body they found to the cult. They looked into all the other stories of murder and disappearance, but there was no physical evidence. They even brought in Ward Blackburn for questioning since he was so close to May, but he only rambled about rainwater collection and traffic and soon their investigation ran into a dead end. After everything, May and Ruth were only charged with a long list of financial crimes. Three of the 15 charges against them were dropped on October 16, 1928, and the next day the DA told the press that Samuel Rizzio was most likely killed by the cult in 1924. They wanted to keep pressure on May even though some of her charges were being dropped. As for the case of Willa Rhodes, on October 22nd, the county coroner determined that she had not been murdered. One report said she died from a, quote, ulcerated tooth. And after looking into it, I couldn't even find what an ulcerated tooth is. I figure it's an old medical term that's been phased out. I I couldn't find anything about it. I mean, since this case was even around, it's been 100 years since then. Medical terminology has changed a lot. Yeah, it probably did change. Like an abscess tooth or something? That's what I, I think it was. It was probably like a severe tooth infection that had an abscess and then it spread through her body and eventually killed her. And uh, it's also important to note that Willa's external body was preserved, but her internal organs had been decaying for all that time that she was in the coffin and, and on the ice bath and everything and moving between houses. So it was really impossible. Obviously they could see her dental issues, but it's impossible to actually get a full scope proper autopsy to figure out causes on what actually happened so her true cause of death is unknown but most people think it was a tooth infection that ended up killing her and her mother just didn't want to take her or that's the story they told them and right that's the story they believed true it could have been something much darker but we'll just never never know. know yeah with may in custody the entire cult was under investigation at this point but this did not stop may from controlling her followers while she was even locked up she didn't give out any money. The compound had run out of food, but May wouldn't support them from behind bars. And as you can imagine, when people get hungry, things fall apart very quickly. Everyone actually abandoned the compound. 
May was eventually released on October 30th with a bail of $10,000, which is about $177,000 today. When Clifford heard about her release, he was furious, so he ended up filing another lawsuit against her. He claimed he had signed over one of his properties to May, but only because she threatened his life. So on December 4th, 1929, May was prosecuted for her crimes. She pleaded not guilty, and a trial began in January 1930. Her main defense for her crimes was that she was just listening to the angel Gabriel. Very believable. And she couldn't refuse the orders that came from God. She also showed the court that her organization was an official nonprofit church on paper, and Clifford had willingly donated money and resources to the church over the years. But the jury didn't buy it. On March 2nd, 1930, May was convicted of eight counts of grand theft. She had defrauded her followers out of $200,000, which is over $3.5 million in today's money. And a quarter of that was from Clifford Dabney. She was ordered to pay Clifford $30,000 and return his oil lease. She was also sentenced to 14 years per count in San Quentin prison. Whew, tough place with a total sentence of 112 years. After the conviction, the cult followers sent him countless death threats, and May was placed in a county jail while she appealed. Her case eventually went to the California Supreme Court, and she claimed her trial had been unfair because the prosecutors focused on the disappearance and deaths surrounding the cult instead of the financial crimes. She said this turned the jury against her when the case was only supposed to be about the grand theft. Plus, the court acknowledged that Clifford willingly gave over his money to the religious organization, and this was protected under religious freedom laws. As long as Clifford was mentally healthy, then the money was fair. So on November 30th, 1931, the court actually ruled in May's favor, and she was released after only a year and a half in prison. May had gotten away with everything, and from the lack of evidence, no other charges were brought against her. That is absolutely nuts. Crazy. The bodies of Samuel Rizzio and Francis Turner were also never found, and Martha and William Rhodes were never charged for keeping their dead daughter under their floorboards. May was a free woman once again, but almost all of her cult followers had abandoned her. Her book, The Great Sixth Seal, was still never published, but in 1936 she published a book called The Origin of God. She had dictated the manuscript to an old follower named Winifred Baker. After it was published, May didn't even offer her a copy after all the work she'd put in. She made her buy it. That is insane, man. <laughs> May lived to the ripe old age of 87 years old, and she eventually died of heart failure in her home in Los Angeles on June 17, 1951. At the time, she still had a few followers, including her daughter Ruth, and May's last wish was for them to move to Lake Tahoe, which they did. But the cult was done and it never returned to what it used to be. The end. <laughs> Crazy story. Yeah, isn't that nuts? Man, hey. and I, the uh, the weird part is that a part of me is I kind of, uh, feel bad for her? Not bad for her, but as far as that case went, and it went to the state Supreme Court, and they were like, actually, you kind of did willingly give over your money so it's like I was kind of on her side. I mean, she's obviously a vile human being. Yeah, like was doing really shady sh stuff. But, but she was kind of smart at the same time. Yeah, and like she knew to get that nonprofit official because she had that other cult. But she's like, I need to put this on paper so that you know you protects, trace trace the money. The cult, yeah, yeah. And I mean, the 
religious rights are huge in this country and she probably knew that how to yeah. secure that money look legally. at scientology man yeah exactly they're breaking in scientology a cult yep. or is it a religion don't really know what's the difference yeah <laughs> i didn't say that <laughs> but no i i i see what you're saying though i, I think she as vile as she was i think she was also very smart about how she went about doing doing things and i i think originally her goal was money yeah money and it was her goal to the end but uh, somewhere along the way and this happens oftentimes with cult leaders is like they maybe start out more fair and more like you know kind of take care of people a bit people like them and over time that that attention and control goes to their head and completely corrupts them and yeah what's the old saying just, uh, yeah. absolute power corrupts absolutely yeah. yeah or from the famous spider-man with great power comes <laughs> great responsibility peter parker man yeah. never forget i'd follow peter parker's religion if he started one <laughs> <laughs> but that it's it's the truth though it's like when you get that kind of power you can use it for good or for evil and i think over time she started using it for evil and it just became like a i feel like she's just like putting on a show because yeah, yeah. i just i remember like her ultimate goal was to be in film and be a director and make movies in hollywood yeah and i think she like took that and then took these religious ideas and kind of like meshed them together to create this like production that she put on yeah and she was kind of writing as she went along we knew she was interested in hollywood you know she wanted yeah. to make films so i guess entertainment wasn't that far off so yeah doing this kind of theatrical stuff was because like I, I just really don't believe she was like really about the spiritual part of it yeah i feel like it was like just too convenient the way it all like of course an angel comes to you and says this and and I do wonder about the voices thing because I go back to that. I'm like, was that just something she said or was that actually like a mental illness that she was dealing with? Right. I mean, obviously it's not as documented as it could be. It's hard to, as far as it goes to like hearing voices, it's either like that probably just came from her. So you either have to believe her that that was right. a real thing or it wasn't. So yeah, that's hard to dig into without knowing too much yeah i tend to lean on the she just made that up yeah she totally could have and use that to her her advantage to to make her story sound legit yeah like she was speaking with a spiritual dove like i had been speaking with god since yeah. i was four whatever well know? it's like the people are like oh yeah i've been visited by aliens since i was a kid right yeah you know what i mean you believe that <laughs> i mean that'd be sick if i true. heard a, i heard a little alien talking to me at night <laughs> through my window Joss, sweet come out and play <laughs> you know so it's like i think it's the same kind of thing and i think it's hard because obviously whenever you hear somebody hearing voices you start thinking okay it definitely could be mental illness there which there could have been i mean we don't know that's the hard thing with this it's happened so long ago i mean they didn't know anything about mental illness at the time so yeah. and she as far as we know she never went and got like diagnosed with anything so so with that being said i tend to lean to she concocted this story she played into it yeah. just because like everything leading up to that there's nothing no evidence of like other circumstances in hearing voices it was always hearing voices from god or spirit it was like always in the spiritual realm and not like i just heard these like random voices when i was three and you know or four or whatever and i didn't know where you know like somebody who truly is dealing with mental illness i mean 
may have different versions of those voices as opposed to just one version that she kind of ran with her whole life. Yeah, and to be willingly exploiting your own potential mental illness for a benefit, for gain, it's kind of like a, that that's quite a play there, if that's true. Like if she's saying, I heard voices from when I was young, when I was a kid, and also now I, it was the voice of God, and then playing into that to start your own cult is like, seems like too many plays for someone who's actually dealing with something genuine. Also, yeah. side note, I have to clarify just for the nerds out there. It was Uncle Ben who originally said that quote. Just, oh, thank I know you. that's going to bother me. Thank you for, it was Uncle Ben. You're yeah. right. You're right. Shame on me. Shame on me. I should go back and watch <laughs> Watch those again. Wow. I can't believe I, me- I messed that up. Yeah. You're right. Sorry. I did that was Uncle Ben's there. advice to, yeah. to Peter Parker. It's okay, though. We'll forgive you. Too much uh, too much revelations, man. <laughs> yeah, clouded clouded my memory. But yeah, the uh, I think the most disturbing part about this is Will's body, for sure. I, and I Samuel disappearing. Oh, yeah, for sure. Samuel, yeah. And they were so sketchy about it. And, and that even, woman that got abducted, and it, they're pretty sure it was May's car. Yeah, and they like she was never seen from her from, and as far as I could tell, there were no other motives. Like there was no enemies of this woman. They were just kind of living their life out there. One day she just went outside and disappeared. Yeah, it's like it, it seems like this cult got like demented at some point, like clearly, but like really got demented because I'm like. What was the purpose of the blood sacrifices? That was never really like explained of why. Yeah, they found all the like they dog like, carcasses and shit on the property. And so they were killing the donkeys and stuff. Yeah, too. I was like, why though? What was the purpose behind that? I think people were pretty tight-lipped about the cult afterwards. There, yeah, there mu- there's probably more that we don't even know. Because yeah. like, I mean, if she was killing animals for blood sacrifices, I really st- start to question if whether or not she did human sacrifices as well. Cause I mean, if that woman was abducted by cultists, you know, yeah. What would they, they do be? with her? Yeah. Where'd she go? Same with the young woman that when that car dealer came on yeah, the compound, yeah. there's just some random woman like trying to leave. And then they escort her back with firearms. Well, that that's, what's so interesting about this is it's like, there's a lot of, of inspiration drawn from the Bible, but then she like pulled from, other esoteric texts as well and even i even wonder like dabbled in you know some occult stuff and maybe even got into some darker stuff where it's like getting into sex rituals and things like that i mean there was mention of an orgy things like that so i think there's even more happening beneath the surface than we even know yeah because i'm like where those people go why they abduct them what's the motive for that are they doing you know, it's kind of her inner circle doing some other, you know, sacrifices of maybe some other entity. Like maybe it's not just the angel Gabriel. Maybe they're also, you know, doing, uh, doing some uh, work for the devil. Yeah. You know, totally possible. And once you get a compound, it's like, we can do whatever out here. Yeah. I don't think may participate in orgies only because she was like a known germaphobe. But I do wonder if, at a certain point, she just kind of let them do whatever, especially once they were on the compound. If it was just like, 
a free for all. Like there was no rules, like other than the food restrictions. Like right, yeah, everything else. That's that's free like, game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Such such a weird thing to. I mean, it's again, it's all about money, right? But I mean, they had you know three and a half million dollars put into this organization, and they couldn't even afford to a little steak dinner every once in a while. Well, maybe they had steak, just not the T-bone. Yeah, know? yeah. Maybe they went with the, the sirloin, you <laughs> yeah, know what I mean? Like true. The, the cheap cuts or, you know, cube steaks or <laughs> yeah. something, you know? I, I, I do, I'm like, there's obviously way more to the story than is available because there's not like a lot, a lot of, like there's not a lot of action when it comes to the cult, right? There's not like, compared to other cults, there's not like as much, like they're just kind of moving around and, you know, there's, we know they're doing some things, but it's like, there must have been something darker and deeper beneath the surface that was keeping people there. I mean, obviously people were scared of May at some point. So I wonder if they ever saw her do, you know, something violent or, you know, she was really this monster, yeah. you know, kind of behind the scenes. And that's kind of, they, she kept people there in fear. Cause I'm like, she's not providing them with a lot of information over time. No, she's never was- finishing this damn book that she promised them. Oh. And, you know, she's she's conversing with the angel Gabriel. We don't even know how often. Yeah. So it's like, how much information is she really gathering? And how much is she actually like, sh- like what message is she spreading to them? It's not like Jim Jones or, um, you know, some of these other cult leaders where they have like a whole, they have answers to everything and they're constantly giving people knowledge and all of these things and really like providing a value to their members. It just seems like May really didn't, I think she was, a whole lot. I think she was bad at it because yeah. there was even a point where there was a schism forming where even Martha Rose was like, we're not really aligned with what you're talking about. So we're going to kind of go do our own thing. She's like, no, wait, I'll form this other cult that'll more align with your thing. So I don't think she was well-versed in her own religious ideology. I think she was just making shit up as it. I think so. I think along. it was a lot of making shit up. Yeah. That she like found things that she liked and she just kind of like attached to those. It's like, why only Gabriel, the angel? Like, why him? Yeah. Why not any other angels or other entities? Or it's just, yeah. She she grabbed what what she wanted, or what made sense to her, and then she's like, "All right, I'm going to put this out there and see if people accept it or not." But then, she must have been keeping people there in other ways. I also think the material wealth, like when yeah. she brought in like the golden lion lampshade people are like whoa there is money yeah, here yeah, the golden know? throne yeah exactly and and, like, and, and I, I bet you there's way more rituals and things like that that they did that we just don't know about because obviously this was a long time ago and true you know it wasn't like somebody really like recorded a whole bunch of stuff on it and or i think it came the, clean on the cult later on i think it's because the investigation was really getting in there and they were going for the weeds just to try and find these bodies and trying to investigate these deaths so that's what I kind of assume was going on with the cultists where they were like, everyone just keep your mouth shut because this is yeah. getting so weird. You don't even tell your story. It's not even worth it at this point. Yeah. So with that being said, the cult is dead and gone. Yeah. It's been the officially the nonprofit organization has been dissolved. And as far as I know, there's no other active members that are alive. Wow. So that is the story of the Blackburn cult. Let us know what you think of this one. This was a wild one. Lots of just weird stuff going on. A lot of names, a lot of people. I feel like 
it took me a few times to kind of wrap my head around this story. Yeah, we need so much going on. You know, like the beginning of a play, they they have like the character Act name one. and then who yeah. they are. Oh, you know? yeah. So yeah, we yeah, need yeah. like a little rundown of that in, exactly. the, in our YouTube video. Or this something. would make an interesting movie, though, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. I would watch this. This is crazy. Because it's not that it's rare, but it's less common for there to be a female leader yeah. of a cult, right? Like, true. Most of the time, it's male. So this is like one of those instances that were, you know, the cult's led by a female, which I think makes it very interesting and a very, yeah, very charismatic one at that. And Ruth as well. I wonder, wonder how Ruth's life ended up after this, if she was able to kind of get back on track and hopefully, you know, kind of rid herself of all that brainwashing she went through and live her life out. And that's the thing with this. There's limited information on it. Like we had to really, really dig deep to even come up with what we we got yeah, today there's so. like mostly there's one core book yes yeah. a lot of it is and it's like trying to piece together newspaper articles but at the time the newspaper was so sensation sensationalized because it's like whoa they found a dead body yeah. what Doomsday else is going- cult. Yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 so yeah let us know what you think of the blackburn cult have you ever heard of this one we'd love to know your thoughts uh, join us for the live premiere of the episode on fridays at 12 30 mountain time it's always a good time watch through the episode with you guys for the first time and that is on youtube exclusively but that is it for us today thanks for joining us for another episode of lights out podcast we will actually be off next week um, for vacation but then we'll be back the following week with another episode but until then lights out everybody